0: Hello, and welcome to Inside Policy Talks, the premier video podcast of the Macdonald-Laurier Institute, Ottawa's most influential public policy think tank. At the Macdonald-Laurier Institute, we harness the power of Canada's brightest minds to tackle Canada's greatest challenges. Learn more at mcdonaldlaurier.ca. So welcome, everybody. Uh, My name is Jonathan Berkshire Miller. Uh, I'm Director of uh, Foreign Affairs, National Security and Defense at the McDonald laurie Institute. And welcome back to another series of the Inside Policy uh, podcast talks. Uh, We're delighted to to have one of our senior fellows here today with us, uh, Kaveh Sharoos. Kaveh, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks so much, Jonathan. It's really good to be with you.
0: Well, we appreciate your time. We know that there's not much going on in the world right now, but that's keeping any of us busy. Um, uh, we, we really appreciate your time here. Kaveh, I wanted to start off, uh, of course, the minds of, of us, at the McDonnell-Laurie Institute, and I'm sure yourself as well, are on the tragic uh, um, incidents unfolding in the Middle East with Hamas's uh, you know, outrageous uh, terrorist attack. But I want to start with, a, with an op-ed that I, that I really like that you have forthcoming in the Globe and Mail. Uh, looking at Narjiz uh, Mohammadi's award of a Nobel Peace Prize. And I think that the reason I want to start with this is I I want to look more at Iran's role, in particular, uh, on this uh, savage attack that Hamas has had, but more broadly, uh, some of their destabilizing activities in the Middle East, which you've been highlighting at the McDonald laurie Institute and and many of your other hats. Uh, I think uh, you probably have 10 or 15 other hats uh, that you wear. Um, And uh, you've been highlighting these issues for several years. So I wonder if I could start there, Kaveh, um, with you telling the audience a little bit about your piece, a little bit about your thoughts and uh, and also on this most recent uh, attack by Hamas sure absolutely yeah so the piece
1: um you know starts by saying that i was asked um right when the nobel peace prize was announced i was asked by my colleagues at mli to just write a write a short profile about nagas mohammede the the iranian woman that was uh, awarded the nobel peace prize and it was you know it was going to be a straightforward profile and as i got to work um you know i turned on twitter as i often do and i saw you know reports of attacks in israel and then you know like all of us we just watched the brutality unfold. And I was like, well, I can't write this profile anymore. Like no one cares about this story. Um, really, there's a much bigger story happening. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized that there, you know, these stories are actually very connected. The story of the imprisoned human rights activists in Iran, and the story of the Hamas attack, the brutality of the Hamas attack um, really speaks to um, the Iranian regime's brutality. Now there there has not yet been sort of a smoking gun piece of evidence saying that Iran directed this attack that that we saw play out in, in Israel, but Iran gives 100 million dollars a year to Hamas. Iran welcomes the heads of Hamas in regular meetings with uh, you know the heads of states in Iran. They closely collaborate and they, they're proud of their close collaboration. Um, so it's it's really hard to imagine that such a brazen attack would be carried out without. Um, the Iranian regime's authorization. And that's the vision that Iranian, the Iranian regime has had for 40 years of causing brutality and wreaking havoc, not just in the Middle East, but all across the world, in Argentina and Thailand and in India, they've tried to carry out um, terrorist attacks. Um, but there is a counter vision, and that counter vision is Nagas Mohammadi in a prison cell in Iran. Um, in the piece, um, in the Globe, I, I do cite certain criticisms of her. but ultimately you know she's somebody that has come around to the idea that you can't engage with this regime anymore this regime needs to go and it needs to be replaced by something much more humane and if that vision in prison prevails um then i think we're going to have a much more uh peaceful middle east and and i think a lot of a lot more calm in the world so really the the focus i think of the international community should be how do we get that vision to prevail
0: I think that's fantastic. And I, I think you're right highlighting some of the the overt or open things that we know about, uh, you know, Hamas, for example, their connection with Iran. I think two symbolic moments for those observers who might not be as close to it as you. Um, first of all, was just the official, what they overtly said uh, after uh, after this savage attack glorifying this. And again, that probably doesn't surprise a lot of us. And second, I think is the imagery that wasn't lost on me, anyways, of their foreign minister uh, again greeting, uh, you know, Hamas head in in Qatar. Um, and again, uh, this this shouldn't surprise a lot of us. But I think in the aftermath of this brutal attack, the the symbolic uh, nature of those two factors, um, it really struck me. But I wanted to dive in a little bit bigger, about um, a little bit broader, uh, beyond the relationship with Hamas and how you how you see things uh, playing out. So obviously, Iran probably. Um, uh, is 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 thinking fairly carefully now with uh, with U.S. Uh, aircraft carrier in the region, um, but what do you expect Iran's next moves? Whether it's uh, you know their longstanding, obviously support with Hezbollah in Lebanon, um, and, and now in Syria and having a you know de facto proxy in Syria, we know about their uh, their support elsewhere in, in Iraq and Yemen, et cetera. But wh- what how do you expect Iran to react? Um, it, it, would you say in the short term uh, to yeah. this crisis?
1: So Iran has, has made a, a few interesting moves. I mean, initially they sort of saber rattled a little bit, and they indicated that they might open a second front and they might get involved in the war. Uh, they have walked that back. I mean, I think they have come to realize that maybe they weren't anticipating this attack to be su- so successful and the world to respond the way it did. Uh, but they've walked that back now, saying that unless you know we are directly attacked, um, we won't we won't get involved. Um, I, I think the you know what they choose to do with Hezbollah will be. Um, again, Hezbollah, much like Hamas, is, is really just a proxy of the Iranian regime. It's sort of an extension of Iranian foreign policy. Um, whether or not they choose to open a second front um, in Lebanon will be the thing to watch. I think that will signal that this conflict may just grow. Uh, but I think my my feeling is that, that Iran is also not interested in growing this conflict because it, it will be existential to them. I mean, if, if they open a second front and if they get directly, especially if they get directly involved, Um, I I can't imagine any policymaker in Tel Aviv and even the Biden administration in Washington thinking that they can uh, deal with this this regime anymore. I think that they will sign, Iran will sign its own death warrant, the regime will sign its own death warrant if it gets um, involved uh, directly in this battle. Um, And this regime, as cruel and as terroristic as it is, has always been remarkably good at self-preservation. You know, it will talk a big game on ideology. It will say, you know, we need to spread our revolution everywhere in the world. But the minute that it's actually threatened um, or its financial interests um, are threatened, it pulls back. So I I, I suspect Mm -hmm. that they will try to contain it.
0: So, you know, uh, very interesting points, and it, it, one of the one of the things that I think that has been fascinating about the past few years, and I mean Iran and other actors may try to pretend that that things haven't shifted, but things have been shifting in the middle east have been have been constantly in a dynamic state obviously we've seen the abraham accords uh, we saw we saw talks and reports obviously of active discussions between saudi arabia and israel on on normalization relation normalizing their relations um we can imagine that spoilers such as hamas and iran would love to have an opportunity like this to disrupt some of those uh, nascent agreements what's your perspective i mean it seems thus far from what i've been seeing that that uh, many um, in the Middle East have been very cautious um, uh, to to make quick assumptions um, or and they understand very much. They have their own agency and understand that that other actors are trying to, to serve as spoilers and to, to upset this uh, this new dynamic. But do you do you see that? And, and what what risks do you see? I, I, the I do time? see course, that. Yeah.
1: That's a very good point. I mean, there, there are multiple theories as to why Iran might have might have tried to do this mm-hmm. via Hamas. Um, but I think the the best theory that I is, is the most prevalent one, the one that you just mentioned, which is you know these Abraham Accords have been very successful. Normalization is in the works. Um, Saudi Arabia and Israel are getting closer. UAE and Israel are getting closer. Um, and Iran doesn't want to be in a region in which there is a very strong Israeli Arab alliance against it, right? So this is a way to um, create um, havoc and you know, as you said, play spoiler. Um, and I I have observed that. Um, Arab states have been very cautious, you know, if this was 10 years ago, you would have heard much more um, angry denunciations of Israel from Riyadh and elsewhere. Um, That hasn't been the case. But the risk is um, if Israel, I don't want to say overplays its hand, because I think Israel definitely has a right to defend itself and it's operating under very difficult conditions. Uh, But Israel has to be very careful. You and I are speaking the morning after there was, uh, you know, a hospital was attacked. Um, the initial story, which inflamed the Middle East, was that Israel had hit the had hit the hospital. Facts are beginning to emerge to show that that's not actually the case. But it's not hard to imagine that there will be a case where Israel, um, either mistakenly or deliberately, because of Hamas's civilian shield tactics and, the, and its policy of you know hiding weapons in hospitals and schools and places like that, will end up hitting, hitting you know a, a typically civilian um, institution and kill a lot of civilians in the process. And if Israel does make that mistake, I think it will make it much more difficult for the Saudi Arabias and, and UAEs of the world to continue with the normalization path. I think it will be, they have been able to contain the so called Arab street for now, but I, I worry that too many civilian um, uh, casualties done in a kind of a gruesome way um, may, may limit their ability to be able to you know, contain that, that Arab street and the rage among Arab people.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a that's a great point. And I mean, the fundamental respect and honoring of, of international humanitarian law um, is something that's been been mentioned, um, you know, not just by the Canadian side, but I think by the United States president and many others. Um, I wanted to dive into two other quick issues um, before we end. First of all, is a reaction. I mean, the United Nations hasn't been able to resolve anything. uh uh, lately as we've seen with russia's war in ukraine as well um but of the two great uh, sort of authoritarian disruptive powers i think of russia and china um both of them have their own interests obviously in the middle east both of them have their own interests um in, in israel and actually some significant business interests but i it seems that their reaction here um very much uh, is is one to harm U.S. credibility? To obviously uh, keep the United States and its allies bogged down in another region. Obviously, Russia has great interest in doing this with its with its war that it's waging in Ukraine. And I think China similarly has interests of diverting American attention yet again um, to the Indo Pacific. So I wonder if you had any thoughts on on how Russia and China are reacting to this. Uh, before my last question is going to be about uh, the the sort of so what for Canada. So what is how, you know how should Canada be reacting to this? But I wonder if you can touch on Russia and China before sure. I get that. Uh, yeah,
1: R- Russia and China, as far as I know, and maybe I just haven't seen the statements, but they haven't been too too vocal in this. I think they're playing their cards pretty close to, to the chest. They they're they're not sort of coming out one way or the other. But I don't think it's it's hard to imagine what their interest is. Their interest is is not even really. Um, the palestinians or whatever their interest is sowing chaos um and their interest is as you said to bog down the united states um and this is not a new thing i mean we've been seeing it for the past few years where there's this alliance forming across the world and applebaum had a piece in the atlantic a while ago where she you know referred to it as autocracy inc um autocracy inc is china it's russia it's iran it's venezuela it's countries that maybe ideologically aren't even connected uh but they are connected by the idea that they don't want the existing world order. They don't want the United States as the hegemon. Um, they want to disrupt this, this system. They just they, they all happen to be autocracies. Um, and you know, China's on the rise and they they want to sow chaos. Um and I think it's it's really important that we recognize this connection between these and that the Western world um, and its allies begin to realize that they are in a significant ideological battle. Um, currently it tends to be, it's, it's a little bit of a cold war. We're fighting through proxies here and there. Uh, but this, we have to recognize that we're in a battle that the Ukraine battle is connected to the Israel battle is connected to potentially a Taiwan battle. Um, all these things are part of, these are all different theaters of the same war. Um, I think once we recognize that it will mean that we have to strengthen existing Western alliances and not allow, um, autocracy inc to make these incremental gains in various places around the world.
0: I think that's a that's a great point. I mean, I even think of the analogy of Afghanistan, which is complex and complicated in many ways, but the idea that this would be in uh, either China or Russia's interest to have a resurgence of the Taliban with all of the different challenges that they faced. Um, uh, with their own insurgencies um, and what they frame often as insurgencies for their own political interests. Um, I think that the fundamental um, reason they did that was to harm U.S. credibility and and have another example to harm the credibility of the United States and its allies. So I think that is the fundamental driving point of, of Russia and China and many of the autocracies that they surround themselves with. Uh, including Iran, uh, so I wanted to pivot. Um, lastly, before letting you go, Kaveh, um, to to Canada, and obviously you've done great work for several years, um, trying to advise Canadian, um, uh, the Canadian government, parliamentarians, bureaucracy, etc., on some of the moves that that we should have already taken uh, with regard to Iran. Number one, but also a more realistic foreign policy in the Middle East, and we've we've touched on some of these things that some of our partners are already looking at much more engaged, for example, in the Abraham Accords and seeing the dynamic shifts in the region rather than being very reactively um, responding in sort of a whack-a-mole sense. Um, so I wonder if you can touch on these two elements and number one, what in the sort of short term? So what what should we have done yesterday, but we can do today? Um, and then sort of in a long term strategy, how can we get more serious about this part of the world?
1: Yeah. Uh, so in the short term, I mean, there are policy proposals that I and colleagues of mine have put to the Canadian government, you know, list the IRGC, the, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, um, as a terror organization. I mean, this is a commitment that uh, the Trudeau government made several years back and hasn't acted on for reasons that nobody can really explain. I mean, somebody in government knows, but no one's ever publicly told us why. Um, you know, this is this the the IRGC is the sort of the, the, the head of the snake. It is the institution that gives rise to a lot of terrorism in the region and across the world so it needs to be listed as a terror group and a lot of its money that's parked here in canada then needs to be discovered and uh seized um there are lots of people from iran for example escaping um that uh need a need a home so I mean, canada can take steps in in providing a home for refugees um so those are those are sort of short-term things that Iran that that Canada can do with respect to Iran, which I think is uh, you know the the cause of all this chaos. But in terms of what we ought to be doing in, in the long term, and this is not just Canada, this is um, the West generally. This is a point I've made several times, um, you know, in my writing. Israel's best security guarantee is not going to be you know taking over Gaza. Israel's best security guarantee is going to be a free and democratic Iran. And it's very difficult to achieve that via bombings and attacks on Iran. I don't think that's going to work. It's going to cost blood and treasure, and it's going it's, it's to expand the chaos and mayhem and killings. But there is already a revolutionary movement in Iran, right? And it really flared up in the last year. Hundreds of thousands of people coming out on the streets saying "You know, death of the dictator and woman life freedom. This is, to go back to our initial discussion, this is the vision of Nagas Mohamedi in prison, right? This is the vision we ought to be supporting. We ought to be supporting the revolutionaries who are already partway in trying to overthrow this regime. We ought to be helping them, financing them, um, you know, recognizing them in a lot of ways, negotiating with them, helping them organize. And if we can do that, we in the West, and Canada has a role to play in that, but Canada also, Canada's home to a very large Iranian diaspora, so it has an, a, perhaps an outsized role to play in that. But Canada ought to get the West on board um, and the entire West needs to be committed to helping this revolution succeed because the revolutionaries have made it abundantly clear that they're open to the West, that they're on the side of human rights and they they reject this um, Iranian regime focused on Palestine. They want to work with Israel. Um, so if we in the West adopt a policy of helping the revolution unseat the current theocracy in Iran, I think we will go a great distance in helping Israel in the long
0: term well, thanks much, that's very eloquently said and uh, I think it's a it's a great way to to finish this podcast uh, I'm positive that we'll have a, a continuation of this discussion because I don't think these issues are are going away anytime soon. Uh, definitely appreciate your time today and uh, everybody for tuning in and um, this is uh, today's inside policy uh, podcast and uh, we'll look forward to uh, joining you again soon. thank you so much thank you.